Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everyone, so just a quick note here at the beginning, we've started our ongoing study group for podcast patrons. It's twice a month, it's on Wednesdays, it's an opportunity to get together and discuss current episodes and discuss topics in myth that are current and relevant for people, and really to explore the areas that we go into on the podcast in a lot more detail. It's open to all patrons of the podcast, and to become a patron costs very little, it's as little as just a few dollars a month. And for that, you get access to two of these study group Zoom calls per month. They're about 90 minutes each, though I have been known to go over occasionally. (laughs) And if you can't make it for the live sessions, of course, you have access to the recordings as well. And there's lots of additional content that comes along with being a patron. So if you're interested, check out patreon.com slash the emerald podcast that's patreon.com slash the emerald podcast and the funds raised go to cover the expenses of the podcast and they really help me continue with this labor of love which i hope you're all enjoying so yeah check out our study group on patreon.com slash the emerald podcast It's May of 2018, and I'm in a town called Bonito in the state of Mato Grosso do Sul in Brazil. Bonito sits right at the edge of the Pantanal, which is one of the great freshwater ecosystems of the world, the world's largest tropical wetlands. 75,000 square miles of water-steeped wilderness, intricate environments, complex relationships, all fed by rains and deep, deep reservoirs of water. And all that water brings with it a dazzling kaleidoscope of light. Rich vegetation, edible plants, medicinal plants, hardwoods and softwoods, all growing from the life-giving water. Insect species that haven't even been named yet. Flocks of blue and yellow and scarlet macaws. There are 2,000 jaguars at last count lapping at the Pantanal's waters. Capybaras, the largest rodents in the world, rodents of unusual size, you could call them, like cattle-sized guinea pigs. There are deer, jabiru stork and wolves even, all the variety of life that an abundance of water makes possible. And, of course, you can't talk about the Pantanal and not mention the Tamandua, the giant anteater. I had always thought of anteaters as kind of tiny little things, like porcupine-sized maybe, and no, that's not what we're talking about here. The Tamandua can grow to be six, seven feet long, In the book, The Wizard of the Upper Amazon, an Amazonian hunter describes a confrontation between a jaguar and an anteater, and it doesn't end the way you think it would. Life and death at the waterhole. So... Anyway, we're just outside Bonito at the source of the Rio Bonito, which means the beautiful river. And this source is a spring called the Nascente Azul, the Blue Spring. And it's a spring like I've never seen. 
because it's an enormous pool that you can swim in, and the water is completely, utterly, incomprehensibly crystal clear. So clear you can see every scale of every fish, every detail of every plant, even the little bubbles of oxygen rising from the grasses that line the bottom as they photosynthesize. Crystal clear. Aguas cristalinas, as they say in Portuguese. Crystalline waters. And there, at the bottom of the pool, is a deep crack in the rock, an electric blue crack, guarded by a single electric blue fish with yellow eyes who sits there like a sentinel, as if preventing people from crossing over into another world. Because that crack is, in fact, a portal. It's a fissure that leads into the Guarani Aquifer, the second largest aquifer in the world. 10,000 cubic miles of fresh water. Enough water to provide fresh drinking water to everyone on Earth for hundreds of years, bubbling up in springs and sources and rivers and rivulets and smaller aquifers all across southern Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. And I'm there underwater, staring into what seems like an eternal fountain of water, an endless stream of water, the overflowing source. You know what I mean by the overflowing source. Many are the stories that speak of an endless overflowing, of waters eternal. In the old grail stories, the grail was not a cup, but a stone that poured forth with endless water. There's something eternal about the flow of water. We hear waters flowing, and we're drawn into the eternal. What does it do for us, for our systems, our tissues made of mostly water, just to hear of eternal water flowing, to hear of unbroken streams, uninterrupted waters, to hear of flows and cascades, to hear of cool water seeping through sediment, to hear of the river beneath the river, like the Hamza River, have you heard of it? A vast underground river, if river is even the right word, 13,000 feet beneath the Amazon River. A massive, slow, primordial, gradual seeping of millions of cubic feet of water through miles and miles of porous rock, following the same course as the Amazon high up above. A hundred to two hundred miles wide, but moving slowly, only a millimeter per second. 300,000 square miles of water inching its way towards the sea, emptying into the ocean deep, deep below the surface. It 
calms us to hear of eternal waters. Sit by the banks of the river for a few hours, even a few minutes, and listen to the sound of water, and part of what calms us, what draws us in, is that it feels eternal. It's a constant hum, an ever-speaking voice. Like Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha, who sat on the banks of the river and heard eternity, quote, Have you also learned that secret from the river, that there is no such thing as time? That the river is everywhere at the same time? At the source and at the mouth, at the waterfall, at the ferry, at the current, in the ocean and in the mountains? Everywhere. And that the present only exists for it, not the shadow of the past nor the shadow of the future. I'm sure you've sat by a river and felt this timelessness. Like the water is passing by, but it's also continuous. When you stare at a point in the river, a particular little feature, a circulating eddy, and I know you've done this, that little feature is always there. But then you realize that the water that inhabits that eddy compared to when you started looking at it is totally new water. The water you encountered when you first stared at the eddy is way downstream, yet the eddy is still there. So the river is like time itself, discrete and eternal at the same time. You can't step in the same river twice, said Heraclitus, and yet every river we step in leads us to a place of eternal flow. And the discrete moments we spend with rivers are like portals to the eternal. And this is part of the eternal promise of water, that the river keeps flowing, and each place of the river has its own power, a place that right here, right now, is a marker for the eternal. In the songs that honor Oshun, the West African and Afro-Brazilian Orisha that is present in and rejoices in the fresh and flowing waters, each and every place along the river that has its own individual power is named. So Coral Filhos de Yemanjá sings... The lake is of Oshun, the river is of Oshun, the waters are of Oshun, the waters of the waterfall, the force of the waterfall, the crystalline waters, the waters of Oshun. The waters pass through the forest, the waters cascade on stone, the river cuts the field, the river encounters the sea, the waters of Oshun, into the arms of the sea. Water challenges our notions of the continual and the discrete. It challenges the notion of what a distinct object is, because water is not an object unless you put it in an object, like a jar. Water is, what, a flow, an evaporation, a seeping, a pervading, a cascading, a saturation? And because it is these things, it's harder to hold, it's harder to own, which is why, until very recently... It resisted being just another commodity. So water asks us, what do we do when faced with something that flows? Something that pours from the sky even as it seeps from the ground. Something that is in the air, that exists in quantities so abundant that until recently anyway it felt eternal. 
How are we in the face of the source of life itself, clear as crystal, ungraspable, eternally misting, condensing, evaporating, sprinkling, cascading, pouring forth? Well, dwelling in negotiation with an eternal flow is not something human beings have shown themselves to be very good at. Eventually, the human mind kicks in and has to alter the flow, to draw lines, to say, this water over here is mine, and this water over here is a drain. See this horizon line? Everything below that line of ocean is ours for the taking, no questions asked. We damn the flow. We say, this is my water and this is yours. We say, I own the flow. There's an old Celtic story that becomes the basis for some of the later grail legends. It tells of the Holy Grail as a source, a fount that overflows with life-giving water, and the water is available to anyone at any time. Anyone may drink of the eternal fountain. The Grail maidens who encircle the overflowing source distribute the water freely to all. Here's how mythologist and writer Sharon Blackie tells it, quote, But then there came a king in the land who did not cherish the old customs or understand his contract with the land and the duties of hospitality which travel both ways. That king's name was Amangons. So Amangons wanted the grail and the grail maidens for himself. He and his men assaulted the grail maidens. They raped them. They took what was not theirs to take, and from that day forward the eternal waters of the grail were hidden away. Through wrong relationship with nature through violation of the basic protocols, through wanting more than what poured forth freely, through coveting what was for everyone and trying to make it only theirs, what was once ever available becomes parsed out to only a precious few. Sound familiar? It should because it has defined our entire relationship with the planet as exemplified by our relationship with water. Some of the starkest violations of nature are visible in our relationship with water because of how central and how fundamental water is. There's nothing to me that more succinctly summarizes the state of human inequality than water disparity. Some luxuriate in private swimming pools while others have no access to running water at all. And what was once the source of all life, potable water, clear and pure, becomes a carrier for death and disease, 3.4 million people each year dying from diseases carried by water, easily preventable if we took care of water as the great equal provider that it is instead of coveting it. To say that water belongs to someone should feel incongruous to us. The biblical story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman revolves around a well from which only certain people are allowed to drink. 2,000 years ago, and words were being spoken of the dangers of saying this water is for some people and not others. Some over here may have access, and others over there may not. The very nature of water questions the static lines that we draw around yours and mine, because springs, rivers, rains, and oceans flow. They move. And in their flowing, they invite us to imagine new paradigms, to cooperate on great works, like the stone-cut irrigation networks you see in Ladakh and northern India, or Peru, or the 6,000-year-old Egyptian agricultural technologies of ebb and flow that supported a population of millions before the technology was eventually lost. Because water skirts the line between continuous and discrete, it is an opportunity. An opportunity to understand what a good relationship is to source itself 
to that which is both graspable and ungraspable. In right relationship, water will enliven our lives, all of our lives, with all the joy of the sound of splashing on stone. But what is right relationship with water? Today on the podcast, the second part of our series on water, and I've got to warn you, this is kind of like the Empire Strikes Back of the trilogy on water. This is the episode where we're going to go a little deeper into the dark side of the human relationship with water and some of the issues facing the world's waters today. And it's important to dive into these abysses because we can come through with a deeper understanding of what a world would look like in which waters were treated with the respect they deserve. The Many Voices of Water, Part 2, Imagining Water Beyond Lines, this time on The Emerald. Relationships are like shapes, and so I want to start with a shape, a serpentine shape, undulant, coiling, made of dark mud dredged from the bottom of a waterhole in the great sandy desert in Australia. There's a recent film by filmmaker Nicole Ma called Putupari and the Rainmakers, and it follows the journey of a man named Putupari and a group of Australian Aboriginal elders who started to reclaim their relationship with a specific waterhole after former Aboriginal lands began to be recognized in the early 90s. Putupari's grandfather, Spider, guides the expedition along a six-day drive into the great sandy desert, into what we would definitely, in modern lingo, term the middle of nowhere, way, way out in the middle of nowhere, leading a whole expedition to a mud puddle. I mean, that's what it is when they first get there, a little mud puddle in the middle of the desert. And then they start to dig, and the water starts to bubble up and they shape the sides of the embankment to form a pool, a pool of healthy, rising water. Spider takes the dark-colored mud and makes a winding, serpentine sculpture around the waterhole, a sculpture of thunderclouds and water beings. For the waterhole is home to, and is, a serpentine being called Kirtal. And Spider has a direct relationship with Kirtal that spans the range of human emotion and feeling just like any good relationship should. So there's a lot of joy around this reunion with Kirtal. The birds start coming back. Within minutes, the air is full of bird calls. The songs start up and the dances, and the elders cover themselves in the mud of the hole. And they're talking to the water hole. There are direct and intimate conversations happening. And then suddenly they stop talking. And they say, we have to get out of here quick. And they pile into the jeeps and drive away, just as the torrential rains come flooding in. The second time they visit the waterhole is several years later. And this time it's like a lake. There's water everywhere. And this isn't a good thing. It's washed out, no containment. Kirtle has run wild. Spider has to do some serious work to get things back in order again. And a lot of that work happens ritually and relationally. That work happens through songs and dialogue. This delicate balance between overflow and containment. Putupari says, quote, Country isn't how they used to see it before, how it was to them. Country was good and clean and looked after. 
They looked after the country, but nowadays nothing. He's just like a lost soul. Notice how much emphasis there is on looked after. Our relationship with nature is not simply to leave nature alone. It's to help establish healthy systems. And country not looked after is like a lost soul. If you watch Spider in relation to the waterhole, you will see a clinic in good relation with nature. There's a conversation, and that conversation isn't just abstract fluff. It's incredibly tangible. There are protocols to that conversation. Sometimes Spider has to tell Kurtal what's up a little bit. Sometimes he has to do some work so that Kurtal doesn't get too wild. He's definitely got to announce his arrival with fire and shouts and songs. Sometimes he has to call out to him with sternness in his voice, and sometimes longing. He's definitely got to plunge himself right into the water. His body in the water, his hands skimming the water. Art plays an integral role in this relationship, and song, and dancing, and emotion, feeling, longing, story, history. Never is there a sense that the water is a servant, or a visitor, sometimes welcome and other times unwelcome, or a detached idol to be revered from afar. There are limits and boundaries, but they are like the limits and boundaries of the serpentine being sculpture. They adjust, they writhe, they spiral, they grow, like all healthy things grow in coils and in permutations. And those boundaries, limits, flows, guidelines, protocols, when to do what and how to do it, how to act and where to dig and where to build that wall or dig that trench, are all informed through an understanding of the agency and centrality of water, of the personhood of water. It's a water-centric view. It's what will make the water happiest. Because when the water has a healthy movement to it, then everything around will be healthy also. This means shifting our lens in how we view what we call resources. It asks us how we are in relation to a pervasive source that will only deplete if we treat it as a servant to be tamed. But if we construct our lives around it, we will find it is everywhere. It can be drawn from air, it can be held in walls, in tanks, in roots, in forests and snowfields, because that is its liquid nature. Now let's talk about another shape, the line. When Spider draws a map of the waterhole and the waterways, it's not a map like we think of as a map. It's a map of beings and relationships. 
It's a relational work of art whose nodes are deeply connected and intertwined, and everything plays a part. When the European explorers encountered the Polynesian navigators, whose navigational skills put theirs to shame, they couldn't understand their maps because the Polynesian maps were the opposite of the European ones that had detailed depictions of land but left the ocean completely blank as empty space. Polynesian ocean maps were filled with lattices of directional currents and swells and tides that they knew like terrain, even though that terrain shifted. In the European maps, oceans are blank spaces and rivers are discrete lines. So oceans become abysses, voids, fair game for anyone to dredge and pillage and plunder because it's all just empty space, right? And rivers become what? Delineations. Land separated by rivers. Rivers following precise and exact linear courses that only serve to drain land. The riverbank is a fixed place. And of course, once you delineate a static line, then water is bound across that line. And then you have what? A flood. But maybe the water isn't the problem. It's where you chose to mark the line. Dilip Dacuna, architect, landscape designer, adjunct professor at Columbia University, and what I would term a water visionary, speaks of the misconception of rivers as static lines that only serve to drain, as opposed to rivers as ubiquitous wetness, rivers as oceans of rain. He talks about Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, who was not impressed that the Egyptians could not name a definitive source for the river Nile and couldn't explain why it floods every year. Of course, Herodotus didn't consider that rivers might not actually be lines with single points of linear origin, or that the rise and fall of the Nile every year, which was the foundation for Egyptian agriculture, might not be thought of in the Egyptian mind as flooding. A river only floods if you expect it to be somewhere that it isn't. For the Egyptians, inundation was the shape-shifting body of a god. Hapi, the god of the inundation event, lord of the fish and birds of the marshes, androgynous, shapeshifter, a thin-waisted male in the winter and a wide-hipped, heavy-breasted woman in the summer, the seeping, swelling, rising, pervading water, changer of forms, crosser of imaginary lines. But Herodotus needed to think of the river in terms of lines, so he asked, which is the normal Nile? the swollen, vast Nile that stretched from desert to desert in the summer months, or the narrow Nile that flowed between confined banks in the winter? Herodotus did ask this question, you know, of what is a normal Nile? And because, in part, he had drawn a line. He had drawn a line that, that constitutes a river between banks and makes it an entity with a source, you know, because these two lines have to meet somewhere. And they figured it has to meet in a point that was a spring. So they kept searching for this point. I mean, and they've searched for that point until, I mean, they're still searching for the point that they talk about as the longest Nile. But this, to some extent, is is quite a narrow understanding. So, you know, what made them draw the line at all? The Egyptians could not answer Herodotus's question, you know, of why does the Nile flood and where is the source of the Nile? And he actually remarks that, you know, that they are deficient in their in their knowledge. You know, so I, I sort of always joke, you know, this is the this is the first labeling of underdevelopment where people do not know their own place 
But the possibility is that they never saw a flood at all because they never saw a river. They did not posit two lines. So they saw the rise and fall of wetness. And this could be explained as rain that came down from the Ethiopian highlands, a mode of, of movement of rain, of wetness, that basically holds, soaks, you know, saturates, and then exceeds. And so if I think of that as a movement, you know, and then it is held again, and then it saturates and exceeds and is held again. And it's held in plants, it's held in, it's held in animals, it's held in, you know, in the earth, it's held in, in the air. This is the way water moves. Water doesn't move by edges and bank. That's the language of land, geometry, geometry, you know, the language of the earth. It's not the language of water. So if I look at the language of water, water changes state, water it holds in everything. Its language is wetness, not land. So the Nile then that uh, the Egyptians lived by was not a river at all. It was rain that rose and fell. Wetness is, wetness is everywhere. Why do we see water somewhere? And that's a question actually that I find, you know, directing all my, all my understanding now, of how we have constructed rivers to be drains, to drain the land. So it follows from an act of separation. I look at it actually as the start of a language of geography, geography that then becomes the dominating language by which places are colonized and particularly places of rain, you know, that, that then are colonized all on the model of the Nile that was constructed by men like, like Herodotus. Within this static delineation, rivers and lakes are objects, permanent residents considered to be real, whereas rain, clouds, mists, and dews are ephemeral visitors who show up unannounced and then are blamed for any change in the water levels, when actually they are all part of one great oceanic body, like Homer's Oceanus, the body of the waters of clouds and rain and rivulets and aquifers and streams, that are the true river, an all-pervasive wetness. The only way that you can make a separation of land from water, where you draw that line that constitutes the river, the only time in which you can do it is a moment in the hydrologic cycle when it is not raining, when it is not evaporating, when it is not, you know, when water is somehow imagined to just be a liquid in its place. So then I can draw the line. I inhabit that one moment in the hydrologic cycle and then making all the other moments ephemeral. So in other words, rivers have become residents in that particular moment of time. Rivers become residents and rain becomes a visitor that comes and goes. And that's how I grew up in India, in a monsoon world, where I always saw the, the rain as a visitor. Evaporation becomes an ephemeral phenomenon, you know, cloud formation being ephemeral and things like that. All the other moments of the water cycle if you will, become ephemeral versus this surface on which rivers flow is somehow now perennial. So I say, what if I live in another moment of the hydrologic cycle? Or what if I make live with the hydrologic cycle, which I believe most cultures did, you know, live with the hydrologic cycle, then wetness is all the time a resident in just as different forms and different places, rain, is a resident. It's in plants, it's in rain, increases a wetness or replenishes a wetness that is already everywhere. And with a non-linear imagination, rather than this linear hierarchical imagination of a river that 
somehow serves you and serves a mode of habitation that you have constituted as land-centric. We have been sold a certain story about rivers. Rivers are a static line. Rivers exist to drain. Rivers divide land. The river is a certain quantity of water measured in cubic feet. The river originates at one delineated point. But the body of a river is much more than this. Dilip contrasts the Ganges River, the physical delineated water drain that runs through India, with Ganga, the goddess, a perpetual ocean of rain, to highlight the differing ways of understanding what a river really is. Quote, The story of Ganga's descent from the sky is told in the epics and the Puranas. King Bhagirata sought the earthly presence of this goddess to perform the last rites of his ancestors who had been reduced to ashes by the sage Kapila. So he renounced the world to beseech the gods to send her down. But the gods worried that the earth would shatter under her fall. Shiva, god of the sphere of earth, offered to take her fall on his head. Ganga flowed down his hair and, led by Bhagirata, reached the netherworld where she reconstituted his ancestors. They describe it as coming down the locks of his hair, a point, and that is the river Ganges that then flows down to the netherworld and revives Bhagirata's ancestors. Now, what I suggest is another way of looking at this. Given that Shiva is infinite, his hair must be infinite. I mean, I can't imagine counting Shiva's hair. Did Ganga descend by the locks of his hair, or did she descend by his individual hairs? Then what she's doing is simulating rain rather than a river. And so when she falls, she falls by a multiplicity of times and a multiplicity of descents, if you will. So to follow this, Bhagirath was not just following a single course. He was following multiple, 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 billions and billions, unmappable courses, if you will, of each raindrop, of each raindrop. Now that, to me, is much more befitting of the gods. So the Ganga that I see is not the Ganges River. It's Ganga is, can be anywhere. It's a different, it's a different understanding of um, the wetness of Ganga as opposed to the water flow of the Ganges River. Quote, Ganga does not flow as the Ganges does in a course to the sea. She's rather held in soils, aquifers, glaciers, living things, snowfields, agricultural fields, tanks, terraces, wells, cisterns, even the air, all for a multiplicity of durations that range from minutes and days to centuries and eons. She soaks, saturates, and fills before overflowing her way by a multiplicity of roots. Bhagirata's task of leading her to another world is much more challenging, much more mysterious. Unlike the river Ganges, her source is not in a point or points, but in clouds. Also unlike the river Ganges, her source cannot be drawn in a map because the roots are too complex, emergent and changing across a vast depth. The only anchor she offers people is the moment of her descent, the coming of the monsoon. It is, however, the Ganges River that fuels the design imagination, infrastructure, education, science, translations, and conversations. Seventy years after political independence from India, and two millennia after Alexander turned home, Ganga is seen to signify river 
rather than a ubiquitous wetness. Modern Indian news media, as Dilip points out, tends to vilify the rain, which is interesting because the monsoon is traditionally the time of all the festivals. The deep relationship with the monsoon is the heart of much of the spiritual tradition of the subcontinent. The gods wed during the monsoon. Ganga descends during the monsoon. The monsoon is life. But the monsoon is much scarier in a world of lines and barriers, because water crosses lines. Water doesn't seep into aluminum and steel as it does into mud and brick, which traditionally held millions of gallons of Ganga water in the architecture itself. Dilip theorizes that the river, which now rises 40 feet during the monsoon each year, once only rose 2 to 3 feet. The forests, fields, biomass, building materials, and catchment systems along the course of the river historically held Ganga as moisture, moisture distributed across an entire subcontinent. She pervaded and inundated, rather than simply drained in a straight line. I mean, this is something that I surmised, if you will, you know, from archaeological digs in Varanasi that, that go down to the level of the low water mark today. And I ask, you know, I ask the archaeologists, how do people live at that level? You know, if the, if the Ganges rises as it does today, 40 feet above them, I mean, believe it or not, but an archaeologist actually told me they built levees. I said, you know, embankments. I said, are you crazy? I mean, would they, would they do something like that in a, in, a, in a rain culture? I mean, where there's monsoons? I said, they'll die with the monsoon, with, with, with the catchment behind them, they'll drown. You know, so nobody builds em- embankments. You create a bowl, you know, like like New Orleans. New Orleans. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, you create a bowl over there, and you know, and that that then that then is susceptible to flood. You know, you don't do silly things like that. I mean, so they wouldn't have conceived of something like an embankment. The only way one could explain something like that, you know, the fact that they were living at that level, me is that the holding systems were tremendous. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, I mean probably one or two or three percent of it was was designed in a way i mean this was this was forest a world of you know what i call the jungle you know as as an understanding of holding a wetness rather than you know so it can be a grassland it can be a thing you know when the grass turns from brown to green you know i mean that is that's nothing but the monsoon going into plants you know can you imagine the biomass the biomass after every monsoon the transformation of biomass is exponential is exponential, and that is all holding of rain, you know? I mean, and so, so if I'm looking at, at cloud forests, I'm looking at saturated soils. I mean, this is an immense amount of holding, immense amount of holding that we totally underestimate. And now all that is coming down to Varanasi, you know? And, and so therefore, you know, it rises. Now cities exist to drain water rather than hold it. The indigenous understanding of how to work with the rain cycle has been largely lost. And as Dilip says, monsoon peoples, whose experiences are grounded in one part of the hydrological cycle, are made to inhabit another. Traditional monsoon peoples are trapped in a world of embankments and static lines. And they, more often than not, are the victim of floods that happen when a line that someone else drew is crossed. And we are all made to inhabit a world of static waterways with delineated boundaries that fail to treat water as the multi-headed serpentine presence it is, innumerable as the hairs on the head of an infinite deity whose head is the heavens itself. Because 
it's easier to see lines than intricate relationships. It's easier to see river as quantity and flow rate instead of something that, like the Vedic goddess Vaksaraswati, lives equally in the mouths of cows and the clouds and the flowing waters. This reductionism also makes water easier to own. The line of demarcation placed upon water, on a substance that seeps and accumulates and pervades, now becomes a delineation of ownership. Who is it who owns the waters of the world? Let us draw a line. There was a hill near where I was staying, and it was very green. And on the top of the hill, there was a little church. And it was from like 800 A.D., and there was a little bronze plaque that said this church was built on a pagan site. And, you know, whenever I heard the word pagan, I knew there had to be a spring somewhere nearby. There had to be. Um, there had to be. That's my mom, Donna, talking about springs and sacred sites in Europe. She's talking about how churches are often built on pagan sites, and those pagan sites are often the sites of old wells and springs. The systematic eradication of paganism in Europe went hand in hand with control over the continent's waters. Not just the great waterways, but the little places, the sites of communal gathering, of local flow, of wells where beings cluster and drink their fill and commune with the waters that come right out of the ground. In the early part of the first millennium, there were some significant changes in European relationships with water. There was a church meeting, the Council of Arles, and it was here that some of the first edicts about water were delivered. Quote, if in the territory of a bishop, infidels light torches or venerate trees, fountains, or stones, and he neglects to abolish this usage, he must know that he is guilty of sacrilege. So now, to worship water is sacrilege. And water, which had formed so much of the liquid body of the teachings of Jesus, the water in which he was baptized, on which he walked, which flows through his parables like, well, like water, is severed from the body of sacredness. God is sacred. Water, on the other hand, is a resource. And of course, the church had a vested interest in drawing lines around water, Things that flowed eternal had to be administered by the church because if the church didn't administer eternal flow, then eternal flow could be something that just anyone would have access to. And the only eternal flow had to be the eternal flow that they owned, the eternal flow of Christ's forgiveness of sin, which is eternal life. The source of actual life is now desanctified in favor of abstract eternal life. Water can be made holy, but only if blessed by a priest. You can get holy water at a church, but you can't go worship at a spring. I think it affects us deeply to not be able to cast ourselves upon the mossy ground and plunge our faces directly into an ice-cold spring and drink. I think it is another layer of our removal from source that has ramifications we don't even consider. There are layers of relief and letting go in the psyche that we don't get to experience because we are cut off by an invisible boundary, separated physically from source. 
Increasingly after the Council of Arles, the body of the world is seen as utterly distinct from whatever is called God, to the point that eventually Spinoza is excommunicated for making the monstrous suggestion that the world is the body of God. No, the world is here for our use, to be subjugated, dredged, leached, dammed, sluiced, blockaded, contained. Rivers are drains, and water is to be bought and sold. You may have heard the announcement a few weeks back that water futures have just started trading on the New York Stock Exchange. And why not? Water is something that has a finite quantity, right? And as such, it can be bought and sold just like gold can or wheat can or pork bellies can or frozen concentrated orange juice can. An article on CNN questioned the controversial listing of water on the stock exchange and then summed it up with kind of an oh well statement. Quote, at the end of the day, water is just another scarce resource, just like oil, except you need it to brush your teeth every day. Just another resource, just like oil. <laughs> Let me just pause and say it goes against all basic human wisdom to utter the phrase, water is just like oil. Anyway, when I said this was the Empire Strikes Back of the three episodes on water, it wouldn't be complete without Darth Vader, right? <laughs> Cue the music and roll the audio. You may have heard this before. This is the former CEO of Nestle, Peter Breubeck, delivering in German, which rightly or wrongly is not a language that is always associated with empathy, delivering this famous speech in which he says, water is not a human right. First, he warms the audience up by saying that people have this strange idea that everything that comes from nature is somehow good. And then he goes on to say this, and I'll translate. Also Wasser ist natürlich das wichtigste Rohmaterial, das wir heute noch auf der Welt haben. Es geht darum, ob wir das normale Wasserversorgung der Bevölkerung privatisieren. Water is of course the most important raw material we have today in the world. The question is whether we should privatize the normal water supply for the population. One opinion, which I think is extreme, is represented by the NGOs who bang on about declaring water a public right. This means that, as a human being, you should have a right to water. That's an extreme solution. And the other view says that water is a foodstuff, like any other. Foodstuff. Flowing spring, cascading rain, misting cloud, ubiquitous wetness, Serpentine being of the waterhole. Foodstuff. Of course, Nestle responded to the uproar about Brebeck's statement and said they actually do think water is a human right, that the bare necessities for sanitation should be provided. And beyond that, it's a free-for-all. It's an open market. It's open season on water. And Nestle is the largest purveyor of bottled water on the planet. They drain lots and lots of water from fragile ecosystems, taking advantage of ridiculously low fees and outdated water use laws. They pay a couple hundred bucks, literally, for the right to drain millions and millions of gallons of spring water in places like Michigan and California. 
As of 2016, Nestle was paying $584 per year for the right to bottle 36 million gallons of the Strawberry Creek. And then they issue statements saying, you know, their impact on Michigan's water table is negligible, or, hey, don't worry that we're siphoning off 36 million gallons of water off of one stream in California in the middle of a drought. And, you know, these statements are all fine and good, but even if the amount of water weren't an issue, and it is, but even if it weren't, they're also using 95,000 metric tons of plastic per year to bottle that water and to sell it to us. Millions of plastic bottles a day, 90% of them not recycled, all used to sell something that in its simplest form bubbles up out of the ground uncontained. The ocean of rain, the pervasive moisture of the world, the mists, the clouds, the dew, bottled in little plastic bottles and sold. When I was a kid, and this may show my age a little bit, when I was a kid, nobody drank plastic bottled water. The marriage of plastic and water has happened so quickly, so completely, so thoroughly, that no one apparently has stopped to think, wait a minute, I'm paying for water. Do you remember the classic line, the solution to the first riddle in the Da Vinci Code? So dark, the con of man. So dark, the con of man. Hinting at, you know, the biggest lie of all. And the lie here is far less obscure than what Dan Brown was selling about Jesus having a wife or whatever. The dark con of man is there every time you take a trip to the grocery store. I mean, it's like, I don't want to be the one to tell you, but have you realized that they are taking water and they are selling it back to us in plastic bottles? Try to explain that to your Paleolithic forebearers. Imagine a Paleolithic stroll through the bottled water aisle of a modern supermarket, and you have to explain the difference between, you know, Volvic and Aquafina and Evian and Fiji and Aquapana and Vitell and Poland Spring and Crystal Geyser and Deja Blue and Glasso and Voss and Smartwater and Arrowhead and Naya and Ozarka and Ethos. Ethos, you know, ethical water. Now a Starbucks subsidiary, around 2-3% to of the profit goes to help water projects in Africa, which is great, and yet you're pumping out millions of plastic bottles a year. Ethos. It takes a lot of marketing to make one water brand feel more refreshing and one crisper and one more pure and one healthier and one more hydrating and one more ethical. It takes a lot of marketing to make tiny quantities of water separated into individual plastic bottles seem like a normal, understandable thing. Isn't it interesting how plastic has kind of become what water is meant to be? the clear, luminous, ubiquitous matrix through which our lives are lived, the pervasive medium of life, so essential it's everywhere. It's almost as if plastic were a bizarro imitation of water itself. Like, you know, the sorcerer left the keys out and the apprentice got into the workshop and he couldn't make water, only the sorcerer could do that. So he ended up with this other clear, transparent substance. This lab experiment, this evil twin, and the twin got out of the lab. The monster was released, and now the world is permeated with plastic. 
human attention is turned more often towards plastic than it is towards water. And we put water in plastic, and then the plastic, of course, gets in the water. Here's water activist Isabel Friend again speaking about the plastic in the water. It is truly insane, especially when you look at the practices of these companies robbing the watersheds, lowering the water tables, basically making money from nothing. I mean, they're so subsidized that they go into these communities and they just harvest water without paying anything back to the local communities. And then those communities become dry, arid, desertified regions just so that these companies can ship plastic all the way across the world and then people pay more than the price of gasoline for these bottles of water when there are artesian wells in their own and this this is the other thing the companies will label this water spring water but the industry actually lobbied to have the laws changed so that now you can call something spring water when it's just well water And so you think you're drinking spring water, but there are wells right where you live where that water quality is just as good and actually far better because people who drink bottled water can consume as much as an entire credit card's worth of plastic per week. Wow. Per week. (laughs) These phyto or these uh, xenoestrogens from these plastics mimic estrogenic compounds in the body your endocrine system is sensitive in parts per billion parts per billion it's minutely sensitive to even the tiniest amounts of of xenoestrogens and hormones in general and we're flooding our systems with these time magazine reported this in 2019 quote plastic contamination is rampant in bottled water. That was the unsettling conclusion of a study published last year in Frontiers in Chemistry that analyzed samples taken from 259 bottled waters sold in several countries and found that 93% of them contained microplastic synthetic polymer particles. Many of those particles weren't all that small. Some were definitely visible without a magnifying glass or microscope. The 11 bottled water brands tested in Mason's study are among the most popular and widely available in the U.S. and around the world. Samples from the brands tested varied in plastic concentrations, and the average across brands was 325 microplastic particles per liter of bottled water. Nestle Pure Life had the largest average concentration of plastic particles out of all the brands tested. One sample from the brand was found to contain more than 10,000 microplastic particles per liter. So there's water in plastic, there's plastic in the water that's in the plastic, and when the water is used up, where does the plastic go? The plastic ends up in the water. The plastic ends up in the sea. The plastic in the sea. And it's such a stupid thing to cry over. It's such a banal tragedy. It's such a pathetic whimper of a way to enact the apocalypse. It's such a case of future generations saying, why did you do that? It's so imminently solvable if it weren't for that little thing called greed.
greed, greed, greed. There's plastic in the sea. The oceans, another victim of imposed lines. Let's take our line of demarcation, the dividing line, and and flip it horizontally so that it becomes the line between what is above and what is below, like the line of the horizon, a line that delineates surface. And this dividing line between visible and invisible, above and below the surface, this line has defined our relationship with the ocean. We can't see what's below the line, below the surface. And because we can't see it, it must go on forever. We can't see it, so it's there for the taking. We can't see it, so what we put there disappears, right? It's the blank space on the map. It's a void without end. And so we plunder the intricate, elaborate ecosystems of the sea the way we never would in plain sight, the marine equivalent of clear-cutting, or worse, all across the oceans, all because we can't see the results of the havoc we're wreaking because it's below an artificially delineated surface, a surface that evaporates, so to speak, when we look at the world outside of a paradigm of lines and through the many tendrilled lens of water. For water, there's not a line. Clouds and ocean are a continuum. What happens below the surface is in constant reciprocal relation with what is above. And pretty soon, dump enough below the surface, and it starts washing up above, washing up on our beaches, in the form of millions upon millions of tiny beads of plastic. Last time I mentioned my conversation with John Hosevar, the director of the Oceans Campaigns for Greenpeace USA. Here's more of that conversation in which John and I talk about water and plastic. We've made enormous progress as a species at a global level in reducing the amount of toxic sludge of all different kinds that we dump directly into the ocean on purpose. But over the same period of time, we have put more and more and more plastic into our world and into the ocean. And at this point, we've put so much plastic into our environment that we eat it and we drink it and we breathe it every day of our lives. Which is wild for people who are pretty much like exactly our age, because we remember how it wasn't like that. And the shift of plastic has been so sudden, you know, and now, now we consider it something we could never live without. I could never live without plastic. And it's like, well, we did in the seventies, we lived without plastic for the most part. Yeah. It's, it's hard for a lot of people to imagine a world without all this throwaway plastic, but it was just how things were done from, you know, most for our grandparents didn't grow up with plastic at all. The good thing is that we know enough to know that we have to do something different. And also there are some good examples of, you know, when we figured out we'd made a mistake, the world coming together and doing something about it. When we realized that uh, DDT was killing birds, among many other things, for the most part agreed to stop making it. So this is our, you know, this is our asbestos moment. This is, you know, this is when we realize, oh God, this was not a good idea. The UN will decide next February whether to develop a new global treaty on plastic. Almost positive they will. And so we have some time to make sure that it's a good one. And that would look like a 
like systematic reduction in the amount of plastic produced that nations are allowed to use? Yeah, fundamentally, we have to stop making all this throwaway plastic. We can't recycle our way out of it. We can't, you know, just educate people to recycle better. Like in the U.S., we recycle well under 10% of the plastic that we make. So the majority of the plastic is dumped, burned, or goes straight into the environment. Doesn't it drive you nuts sometimes that all, all this is just such common sense? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, it's totally infuriating how obvious most of this stuff is and how hard we have to work to convince people things that they already know. What do you, like, you know, I mean, and this is probably conversations you and I have had years ago in relation to <laughs> many other things, but like, you know, do you think the primary obstacle at this point is like inertia and ignorance, basically? I mean, we're in a rhythm and it's hard to break out of that rhythm once you're in it. Yeah, as you said, literally everyone understands that plastic is a problem and that we need to do something differently. The petrochemical companies, because plastic is made from fossil fuels, and you know, companies like Coke that sell 110 billion plastic bottles a year, um, companies like you know all the supermarket chains, um, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, sell all of their products in throwaway plastic packaging. They know that something needs to change. They really don't want to do it. They, they want to keep the conversation focused on recycling. Well, we'll increase recycle content. We'll help support a fund that educates people so they recycle smarter. We'll even, you know, pay to improve recycling infrastructure, but none of those things will even offset the growth in production that they say they want. Inertia is definitely part of it. Lack of imagination is part of it, but more than anything, it's greed and fear of losing uh, market share. One of the things I feel these days is that I can't just kind of put that type of knowledge out of my mind. I can't, I can't go back to like, you know, this feeling of the ocean just as this place of inexhaustible wonder. And, and there's always now this little voice that says, yeah, and here's what we're doing to it. And, you know, the reason, the reason I ask like about your relationship with it is just because I think that there's, I think that there's something that we're facing as human beings, you know, in addition to the many like tangible environmental things that we're facing i think that there's something going on with the human psyche that you know when we start to realize like these these oceans and hopefully this inspires people to act right um so i'm meandering a little bit but you know what i'm you know what i'm getting at the i wish i didn't yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, for most of my life, coral reefs were my happy place. You know, it's like where I could just forget everything and just appreciate uh, the wonder of it all. And, um, I can't, I can't go to a coral reef now without being really, really just crushingly depressed about how much things have changed and how much we've lost. When I started diving, I was 14 and I'm 52 now. 
And in that time, we've lost two thirds of their world's coral reefs. And the health of what's left is not great. So you see, it's just, it's really visible in a way that I would like to just check out and appreciate. I, I can't ever, you know, I, I can't ever ignore that part of it. And yet there's still this profound power of the ocean to wash all that away when we're in it too. those troubles that we're feeling. And the, it's one of the things I've noticed most about the ocean is that it has this ability or our relationship with it. It has this ability to, yeah, wash some of these cares and worries away and still be a magical place for us to replenish and feel that sense of wonder. So do you, I mean, do you feel like kind of alternating? Like do you f still find magic in the, in the water, I would assume? A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I feel simultaneously um, grief and despair of what we've done and what we're still doing and still absolutely uh, what draws me back to the ocean is that sense of wonder and uh, discovery and possibility and um, you know for me there's there's nothing else like it I mean I, I love going into a forest love, you know going into the mountains um, rivers lakes you know it, there's just so many different parts of the natural world that are powerful and you know really fantastic to visit but um, for me there's never been anything quite like uh, just going into the ocean I don't even want to be on a boat <laughs> I want to be in it So, as John says, there are big things coming over the next year, international covenants on waters and on plastics, and these things are very important to support. And if you want to support Greenpeace's ocean efforts, I recommend going to greenpeace.org and clicking on Oceans and see what you can do to help. It's a vital, vital cause. And as I hope has become clear with the episode today, the water issue is one that hits deeply at perceptions and relationships. A huge part of the problem we face with water is a problem of perception and then by extension relationship. And so the shift that is necessary is one of relationship. Water has tested us in this regard specifically because water fits the shape of its container. So whatever space we make for water is the space that water will assume. If we can only envision water as a commodity to be parceled, then that's what water will be. If we can only envision a river as a drain, then that's what a river will be. If we can only see static dividing lines between land and water, then floods will keep happening because we haven't designed for them. If we decide that the water problems of the future are simply problems of quantity, 
and we simultaneously assume that we're going to keep draining billions upon billions of gallons away from use every day instead of using it, or simultaneously assume that lawns are more important than water catchment, they're worth 50% of our urban water, and cattle are worth 50% of our total fresh water, then we've condemned ourselves to a future of shortages. Water fits the container of our own minds, our own imaginations. Is the vessel we have prepared for water a living sculpture of a shape-shifting serpentine being, or is it a plastic bottle? Thinking outside the box here has literal meanings. We have to shift our thinking and ideating and imagining to match the many-limbed shape of water. Traditional metrics have viewed water in terms of quantity, flow rate, origin, movement from point A to point B. As you know, on this podcast, I'm always asking if this quantitative view is enough. What is lost when we lose a more textured view, when the many-coiled, many-haired, many-tendrilled water being is relegated to a single line? So when we ask what is a river quantitatively, we get a certain answer. When we ask who is the water, what are the boundaries of its body, with whom is it in correspondence, and how, then we get a very different answer, a more oceanic answer an answer more aligned with the shape of water. That answer has texture and feeling. That answer takes the form of a many-limbed being, whose limbs are not only the mists and dews, the seeping aquifers, but also the very feelings that we have about water, the songs that are sung to water in the monsoon festivals, the recognition of the water in our mouths and bellies and in the wetness of our eyes. All when we ask who is water, this infinite-haired god of life. This imaginative, water-centric view reminds us that we live in the midst of water as water, and we need to begin to design our lives to align to water as opposed to trying to make water our servant. To design from the perspective of water and what it needs and how it naturally wants to express will ultimately provide more for all of us than designing for ourselves with water as just another resource. To design for the Colorado River, its rains, its canyons, its sandstone seepings, its snowfields, its porous rock, rather than for the Hollywood homeowner's lawn that becomes the end of the river, is a deep shift in thinking. What you have to do is work through negotiation. So, so wetness calls for negotiation. Quantification really is you know, comes with separation. So, so design of infrastructure works by separation as opposed to negotiation. So what it's missing in one word or, you know, in two words is wetness and negotiation. Well, and that principle of negotiation that you're speaking about, I think is, is key. And I mean, it has so many Permutations. I mean, I mean, I, I just saw a really fascinating film about um, some Australian elders, uh, Aboriginal elders, and their relationship with a particular waterhole. And negotiation would be a perfect word to describe the relationship that they have with this waterhole. It's a negotiation that's even verbal and sung, and it's a negotiation that happens takes place every day, and it's one that carries with it a lot of feeling, and. It's interesting because like we're not used to speaking like when we look at metrics of relationship, you know, we're used to speaking in purely in quantities. And it's interesting to start to think of what negotiation means because negotiation 
carries with it a much more personal and much more emotional bond as well. Yeah, I think that's that's well put. I mean, it it really draws in multiple senses, you know, and that you're that you're you're living by multiple senses. What happens with rivers is that it's primarily driven by the visual sense, you know. Once I once I demarcate, I mean, the the kinds of things that follow follows from a visual sensibility that uh, that I tend to tend to question because that's what drives the act of separation is the visual. The visual that comes with an outsider who's, you know, surveying, you know, and studying and observing, and uh, yeah, and from there on, I mean, there are layers and then layers of, of, I would think, colonization that takes place through through separation that totally misses. I mean, it was almost so other to this world that you are describing, you know, of of negotiation that just takes place with your whole being as it were i'm assuming that that negotiation in practice looks like a change in the way in the placement of buildings maybe the building on mounds the change in water catchment a change in materials is it it's all these things and and more i i assume oh, yeah absolutely I, because one of the things i mean i found i mean that in questioning rivers once you question a river, you question everything. I mean, you question civilization, you question habitation, you question the notion of city, you know, and, and how the city marginalizes, you know, through the act of separation, marginalizes and then includes on its own terms. So it marginalizes water and then includes it in its infrastructure. It, it marginalizes the country and then includes the country in its, you know, as rural or as, you know, suburbs or, you know, things like that. So to me, I mean, the shift to the shift to rain, the shift to wetness challenges some of these methods of habitation or, or infrastructures of habitation that have given us ideas like the city and for coming up with another mode of habitation, you know, and, and how, how people here live by just a different reading of place. How do you inhabit a zone of wetness from clouds to aquifers rather than inhabit an earth surface by urban and rural, mm. you know, is, is the kind of question that I would ask. So yes, I mean, I would say as a designer, I'm more interested in how we can institute a new infrastructure and what kind of, of wetness, an infrastructure of wetness, and then what that infrastructure will allow us, how that will allow us to inhabit. I mean, what could a city like Mumbai that by now is so established as a island city, what could it do to reclaim some of this negotiation as an estuary? Like, what are some yeah. ways that it can be done? That, that, that's a good question. You know, the way we answer that to some extent is, you know, by the concept of what we call the multiplicity of the small. The multiplicity of the small, you know, we, we turn from the largeness of rivers, you know, and flows of rivers to the raindrop. If we design in Mumbai, as we suggested in our book, you know, soak, then we are talking about we're talking about living by time, by certain adaptation to rain and to wetness. So, you know, I mean, I can play cricket on a ground that become a holding can become a holding place for wetness, can become an agricultural field, can become, you know, what I'm saying is I can I can start working by time. And we did this in Norfolk as well, you know, I mean, where we inhabit gradients. We have gradients in time, you know, between, if you would call them still land and sea, you know, so we dissolve some of these distinctions. Mm -hmm. So Bombay can certainly move to becoming Mumbai in an estuary, you know, by, by beginning to appreciate 
the multiplicity of the small and in interventions that that then begin to gather place differently you know mm-hmm. on the terms of wetness rather than gathering them by land uses for example you know let's work by practices of wetness rather than land uses in space i mean what we we see as a shift in imagination mm-hmm. you know as well perception and imagination you know and our whole reading of experience is grounded in another common sense there are many initiatives that are now underway that are attempting to rethink water sponge city initiatives to transform the urban landscape to hold water rather than drain it off the book blue mind by wallace nichols made a strong case for the mental and emotional benefits of living near water and the eu in 2016 initiated blue health 2020 a quote four-year cross-disciplinary research project examining the effects of aquatic environments on body and mind with the goal of exploring the best ways to use water to improve the well-being of people in busy cities. Experimental vertical gardens have been shown to use 95% less water than traditional farming methods. 95%. Soil management employing mycorrhizal fungi networks shows that plants in fungi-rich soils absorb water 10 to 100 times as efficiently as root systems with no such fungal networks. This alone could save billions and billions of gallons of water per year. Imagine the cities of the future holding water in walls and fungal networks and in vertical garden biomass and in tanks. Imagine spiraling building cities that seem to effortlessly grow as an extension of water-based ecosystems. Imagine what water could do if we gave it half the attention we give to plastic. All of this needs to be guided by a shift in relationship. The metrics of our relationship with water can no longer just be gallons and feet per second. They must be metrics of intimacy. They must include hope, longing, relief, joy, and reverence. Not the aloof reverence we might have for a detached impersonal god or equation of quantity, but the reverence we feel for the skin of our child, the fruit of our garden, the kiss of our lover, the taste of milk, the feel of moss, the cool air of forests the sound of singing. All of these things have one thing in common, one common denominator. They all exist because of water. Because it is water that makes all these things what they are. The question of how we evaluate water is how we evaluate the purpose of life itself through metrics of joy and hope. I took a walk yesterday on the shore of the ocean. I took a walk with my feet in the waters. Today, I'm not singing of everything we've lost. I'm singing of all that is emerging, of all that is shifting shape and re-expressing. I'm singing of waters everywhere. I'm singing of oceans of rain. One of my favorites was um, dropping down in a submarine into the waters off Antarctica. And so, you know, we always have a bunch of challenges to overcome to be able to use the submarine and have it work. The ocean conditions have to be suitable. It can't be too rough, can't be too foggy, or you wouldn't be able to find the submarine at the end of it. Um, Technical stuff has to all work. It took us a while to get the conditions that we needed. So anyway, we finally dropped down and the bottom was just carpeted with reds and oranges and yellows and the just spectacular sea of life and everything that every single thing that we saw I'd never seen before because it only lives in the Antarctic and you know just 
like transported back to being five years old and going to a tidal pool and saying something in there that I'd never seen before, except just everywhere around me were all of these amazing things that only live there. And uh, I don't know, as a, as a feeling that's, that's hard to beat. Um, and what makes it so much better is knowing that the reason that we're there is to get the images and stories and data that's going to enable us to protect it. And we were able to do that. We were able to get um, several new areas in the Antarctic protected um, directly as a result of that. Special thanks to Dilip Dakuna for agreeing on very short notice to come onto the podcast. And his amazing work can be seen at maturedakuna.com. That's M A T H U R D A C U N H A.com. And I'm also going to post our full interview as a follow up episode to this episode. Permission to use audio from the film. And if you haven't seen the movie yet, you must. You can find out more at putupari.com. That's P U T U P A R R I.com. And of course, the beautiful sounds of Serena Bixby singing. As always, this episode references many books, movies, etc. These include Wizard of the Upper Amazon by F. Bruce Lamb, The Princess Bride, the 1987 Rob Reiner film starring Robin Wright Penn and Carrie Elwes. The Bible, The Fight to Stop Nestle from Taking America's Water to Sell in Plastic Bottles, Tom Perkins, writing in The Guardian in October 2019. Your bottled water probably has plastic in it, should you worry. (laughs) Marcus Hyde, writing in Time Magazine in May 2019. Blue Spaces, Why Time Spent Near Water is the Secret of Happiness, L. Hunt, writing in The Guardian, November 2019. Siddhartha by Herman Hess. The Invention of Rivers by Dilip Dakuna and Anuradha Matur. Agua Shun, the song by Coral Filius Jiemaja. The voice of the wells, an old Celtic story, is told by Sharon Blackie. Investors can now trade water futures by Anakin Tapp, CNN, December 2020. The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. The Angel's Corpse by Paul Kalili. Trading Places, the 1983 film starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Blue Mind by Wallace Nichols. Should Rivers Have the Same Legal Rights as Humans, Ashley Westerman, NPR, August 2019, and, of course, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, the 1980 film from Lucasfilm and George Lucas. Arguably the best Star Wars film ever released, and in another episode maybe we can argue about whether Rogue One is better than Return of the Jedi. (laughs) 